Welcome to Backyard Philosophy, a podcast where a couple friends grab some cold ones, sit around the fire, and talk about science, philosophy, and history. Crack one open, sit back, and get a good laugh as we discuss everything from automation to why the meaning of life is 42. biggest arguments that I listened to with the least amount there's no good that was going to come from this argument but what's the difference between green energy and clean energy Mike what do you think well from an engineering standpoint it's do you want it done fast do you want it done right or do you want it to last because you can have maybe two out of three but you can't have all three and everyone asks to have all three it makes me extremely frustrated what about you Nick what's your opinion on it so from what I gathered, green energy is the greatest environmental benefit, and clean energy has zero emissions, but it doesn't need to be renewable, whereas green energy should be renewable. And then renewable energy is something different. It doesn't have to be clean to be renewable. Pretty much, they're all the same thing, but also all different, and they're all fighting against each other when categorizing an energy source as one of these isn't really going to change anything, but... That's just my opinion. We're going to be talking about renewable resources, renewable energy, all sorts of energy. Before we get too far into it, Mike, how are you doing? What are you drinking? Well, I'm excited to talk about this because one of these things is not like the other. And uh, I'm drinking some Clyde Mays, and energy is one of my specialties. So I'm very, very excited to talk about this. What about you, my friend? What are you drinking, and how are you doing? Uh, you know what? It rained here in Oregon, so I'm not really worried about wildfires in the tree farm anymore, so I'm pretty happy. And I went with the classic. It's a little bit higher class, but we're going with the uh, the tried, the true Jim Bean. Ooh, do you have your pinky out or something drinking that, you fancy pants? I, I have a little uh, little teacup over here with a little, little Jim Bean inside, just putting it down in the saucer when I'm done. You turn British, you bastard. I believe it's the only way to drink Jim no no Englishman's ever drank in Jim Bean, so I think we're good there. <laughs> but yes, green energy, renewable energy, I guess the best way to say is energy sources that have some type of benefit. Of course, we will be talking about probably coal, oil, all these different things, but there are changes coming and new forms of energy in development who have been implemented and new ones on the horizon. We'll be talking about all three categories, but it is fascinating, Nick, that renewable and green, though sometimes share same category, are still very different at the same time. Yeah, com- completely different, depending on who you ask, or completely the same thing, depending who you ask. And uh, honestly, I think it's a it's a personal opinion of what you consider green or not. I think a lot of times some people are a little bit picky, but before we get too far into it, I wanted to break down the state of electricity generation for the United States as of 2020. So in 2020, the United States produced 4.12 trillion kilowatt hours of electricity. Kilowatt hours is mostly what we're going to measure energy output in, but we might go back and forth because everyone records things differently. But uh, 20% of that was renewables. Another 20% was nuclear. 19% was coal. 40% natural gas, 1% petroleum. We're going to mostly be talking about the renewables today. And of those 20% of electricity generated in 2020, 
8.4% of that was wind power, 7.3% hydropower, 2.3% solar, 1.4% biomass, and 0.4% geothermal. Well, straight off the bat, Nick, if I can intervene, I saw different percentages on petroleum natural gas, but... Well, I I got my numbers from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. A government agency? A government agency. I think we figured out where the problem is. (laughs) No, it's there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of people who measure, uh, as we'll probably discuss through this, things very differently on how they value what energy is versus carbon offsets versus carbon dioxide used to produce such objects. It's not an exact science. Everyone has their own methodology. It almost seems like early 1700, 1800 science of there's not a standard set. It's a it's a relatively new field. I mean, from what I understand, a little history lesson, the idea of quote-unquote green energy came from around 1917. And from there, it didn't really go anywhere until about the 1950s kind of got some headway and disappeared until the 1970s and then didn't pop back up until about the 1990s again so it seems like every 20 30 years it's a revival of it but uh, that being said again it's not a standardized science of how is measured across the board even though it can very easily be so yeah you'd think we'd have a better system to track all this and uh this one this this, this source had the easiest to read graph and the simplest and as a government agency and since they oversee everything we do i figured they'd uh they'd have a good idea but it's definitely up for up for debate it's even up for debate of of what's what's considered renewable people some people put nuclear in there just because of how small it is some people put natural gas in there some people don't other people don't put like hydro hydropower in there it, I, I think for for our intense purposes, for uh, for our intent, we're going to include hydrogen power and wind, solar, all that kind of stuff for renewable. But and we're going to compare it to most likely coal, nuclear, and a little bit of natural gas, just so we get a baseline. We, we can't just talk about renewable energy without talking about other energy forms, because if you're not comparing it to a control, then what's what's the point? Yes, I would agree with that. I would agree that natural gas and coal are pretty much the current standard for first world countries. So that's a perfect standard to stand to what we have now versus what we can have. And for renewable energy, I think it might be a good idea to start off of what our definitions, our personal definitions of renewable energy versus green energy is. To me, renewable energy is simply a energy source that can be produced over and over again without huge negative uh, consequences. So say um, you can have a fuel source that you can use over and over again or a fuel source that's easy to obtain or you can grow a fuel source, something, a fuel source that is not obsolete, that can disappear, it's not limited to me, is renewable. And for green, it's simply not releasing tons of toxins and chemicals into the atmosphere, land, or water. And I'm not sure if you agree with the same statement, Nick, but I feel like you're pretty close to what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I definitely agree. Same thing, renewable of it's tr- it, the the main driver is some factor that we don't really have to control that much. So like solar, wind, hydrogen, you know, nature's doing 
most of that work. Um, I'd, I'd put biomass under there, depending on, on the source. And then green is an energy source with minimal impact to the environment. And uh, we'll get to that later. I think there's, and I, I think Mike would agree with me, there's no way to produce electricity without having an impact to the environment. So it's more where do you want to put that impact? But I don't think there's a true green of, of having your cake and eating it too when it comes to, to energy production, but maybe I'll get proved wrong. So we'll see. Well, do you think that, say, this random renewable energy source that could eventually offset its carbon dioxide to be produced as environmental friendly or non emitting to the environment? Would you consider that the same as being both environmental friendly and renewable or simply uh, if it, it's not off the bat green, it's not green? Well, I guess, I guess it, it depends. I'm uh, just from the research that I've done. I'm so far into the, the crazy environmental side that uh, my mind's been clouded by <laughs> by ridiculous statements. But um, so, for example, what, what comes to mind for me for that is uh, is chip plants or chip production. So, like uh, cutting down trees for boards, the leftover chips get chipped up, put into a power plant, and they use the heat from burning the chips to generate electricity. And that's kind of a byproduct of something we do whether because we're building other stuff that to me it it's pretty green like that's something that we have in the background all the time and but then a uh, an environmentalist would say well you're you know you're burning coal or not coal you're burning diesel to get that biomass out of the woods to get it to the chip plant so that's not really green well it depends on how much right. energy is produced versus how much energy is used to produce that i would say no, I agree with you. Oh, okay. It's just the environmentalist. Got it. I'm just saying this is what I've seen in my research of that. It's it's people really want to a zero input, hundred output solution. Um, no, I, I agree. I think that would be green. If you put in less and you get more out of it, then yeah, it makes sense. I, I would consider that green, but it's uh it's a very personal opinion, I think, of what is and what isn't green. Yes, it seems like green in many people's eyes is simply non-burning almost. Like it's that simple, even though, as we'll discuss throughout the podcast, that sometimes burning is green. It might surprise you, and this might be a little teasier for later on in the podcast, but coal has the possibility of bringing a renewable green energy very contradictive but from what i could tell from a lot of people's opinions is simply anything that takes burning or anything that is not um well for lack of better words earth wind or uh water it they classify it as non-green or non-renewable which is not completely the truth in most cases not agree and that that's the thing that is up for personal debate where if it if you release in my mind if you release less CO2 from, let's just use an example of, of burning coal compared to solar power releases from all that stuff, which which one is, is greener? Now, you know, coal's not renewable like solar is. Debatable. But uh, I've, I've agreed. 
but uh <laughs> it's just kind of it's one of those things that i think people don't think about of of how efficient coal is and then of course the solar groups are going to say well that's not fair coal's had 100 years to figure out how to get that efficient solar's only had like 10 i think what you're trying to get as what a lot of people don't understand when it comes to renewable and green energy is the amount of energy it takes to create the equipment to make the actual object and that the amount of energy to create the actual object that all adds up so for example uh solar since you brought that up you need to make the photoelectric cells you need to install it you need to drive it out there all that is fuel some type of fuel source being used and that is all creating that's all energy needing to be used and with all that well and then i mean do you want to get let's uh let's let's kind of start getting into solar to talk about I think it's it's a good main one to start with, but kind of go through the steps from the I don't know the the beginning of solar to when it gets put in the ground of of what it takes because I we're what I think we're going to go over what I plan on going over is the inputs of you know what what do you need to make a solar panel how does it get where it's going where does it go what is it doing to the environment when it's there you know and can this and how efficient is it can this be considered green and why are we making exceptions for certain things versus other things? But I guess I'm getting too far ahead, but let's talk about solar panels. Or, or did you have something else no, to say? No, I was just going to say probably the best part to start with solar panels is silica, which is a mineral which is kind of getting more difficult to get nowadays. I mean, with beaches and sand disappearing, that's right, folks, sand is kind of disappearing, which we might do a future episode on. But silica is the main element used, uh, sorry, molecule used in production for solar panels in the modern world, the current day of age. It's all comes, starts with mining, getting that raw mineral out of the ground. And Mike, do you know where most of that silica and, and photovoltaic cells come from? Uh, Africa, if I believe. Okay, well, apparently we we don't. No, no, no. I did um, not research. I read this from common from... memory. I think it's. Okay. I thought it was most a lot of mining minerals come from South Africa, but I could be mistaken. Well, I mean, we're not too far off. I was under the impression that most photovoltaic cells, and I guess maybe the the minerals come from Africa, but where they get constructed and other parts are mined and created are in China in the. Uh, eastern part of china uh in their uh what's the right word for factories where they're putting the uyghur muslims Con- Con- not forced labor well, i was gonna say concentration camp but you know same thing it's yeah the same thing um so a lot of uh, uh solar cells solar photovoltaic cells and the you know that blue part of the panels are constructed in forced labor camps in china uh made from and and i'm not meaning to pick on uh solar cells here because i think every single energy source we're going to talk about has you have to mine things to get the stuff that goes into this stuff whether it's the magnets that go in turbines all this metal needs to come from somewhere or i guess silica needs to come from somewhere everything worth a damn is a dual-edged sword Uh, we've said it many times in podcasts Anything with actual power or anything that's truly worth a damn is a dual-edged sword. 
And unfortunately, green energy slash renewable energy is one of those sources. Yeah. So uh, about half of the world's photovoltaic cells are manufactured in China. And um, this may be of little surprise to you guys, but China doesn't do the best job with its environmental protection. I don't know if they have an environmental protection agency, but I guess if you're using forced labor, you don't really give a shit about that at all. So that's part of the problem with the, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if you'd consider that an, an environmental problem with photovoltaic cells, but it's definitely a human rights problem. A, it's definitely a problem. I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know what, what kind of problem it is. It's, it's a big problem, but, um, but yeah, so you have, you know, you, so these, these things, they get many, they get, they get mined just like everything else. I mean, coal gets mined, everything gets mined. Like things, these things come from the ground. We're not out in nature finding solar cells. Like that's just not, you know, it's not Minecraft out here. Well, you can technically make a solar cell out of a blueberry. Oh my God. I, I know. You so you're, listen, listen, you're in the science world now. All right. This is my world. There's a lot of contradiction statements and, uh. The only reason I know this is because I made a couple of solar cells out of blueberries. So yes, uh, but the if bold of you to not just eat the blueberries. So well, one, oh god, blueberries are like cocaine. They're so good. Uh, but the efficiency of blueberry solar cells compared to silica so, uh, solar cells are very low. Just for general statement, shocker. <laughs> Actually, it wasn't too bad percentages. I think it was. I got the blueberry solar cells to be about eight percent. 10% uh, absorption. And I think the highest we have been for silica solar cells is 22%. Usually they're around 18 to 22%. That's usually higher end. But uh, real solar panels that you just buy every day are usually around 15%. So I was quite happy with 8 to 10%. Gotcha. Um, so, all right. Back in the the solar panel production. So once you have your, your silica, you have to refine it into the stuff we have today. So you get into the good enough grade that you want, and then you um, you create a... Uh, you use hydrochloric acid with your high-grade silicon silica to create... And Mike, here is your chance to make fun of me. Trichlorosilanes. That is a stupid made-up word. Silanes? Um, That's the only part that... Silanes? Trichlor... T-R-I-C-H-L-O-R-O-S-I-L-A-N-E-S. Trichlorosilanes? Yeah, okay. Sounds right. I'm actually pretty decent at Latin, so I'll give you that. That sounds pretty close. Anyway, so they react with hydrogen to produce the silicone tetrachloride, and... Problem with with that is that uh, you get a lot of byproduct, which the byproduct is hydrochloric acid. And I'm not going to name what country does this, but a certain country we may have talked about just kind of dumps that, and it doesn't do doesn't do anything for the soil. Which is surprising so. because if I remember correctly, hydrochloric acid is mineric acid, which is used in a lot of applications. So that could be really easily bottled and sold, which I'm very surprised that they just dump it into Chinese soil. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I, did I, I, I dump it into quote unquote soil? I have no idea. The article, what I read said they dump it, but I'm sure, you know, China's not going to waste money 
don't know. So maybe they they figured it out. I just it just has uh, information about the, the the contamination downriver of the plant. So we got our you know just like everything in anything even like look at the hemp episode we did a long time ago. Even a completely gr- like what people consider a completely green product some of the byproducts of it are just completely not green so we're not trying to shit on solar we're just trying to bring to say this is what happens i guess i don't know solar just happens to be first (laughs) well everyone's on the chopping block and uh boy it's like the french revolution everyone's getting the guillotine but maybe i can intervene i don't know if you're done with the production nick of all because i you mentioned the transportation of getting it from china to america using the diesel shipping container ships which is kind of ironic that diesel shipping container ships are transporting solar panels but um solar is very intriguing especially for the future of humanity i'm not sure if you wish to continue on production or hop into application yeah i have nothing left in production so let's move on into application so solar comes in many different forms there are Solar panels that you, I don't know, get on little lanterns that you put in your yard. Solar panels that you are putting into the desert to produce energy for a region. Solar panels that you put on your roof to, in case a government becomes too corrupt or too terrible, that you have your own energy source. Or if the snow apocalypse comes back to Texas, you're okay. But solar panels are pretty decent at producing energy. Like I said, they produce anywhere from 18 to 22% on the high end, 15% on the, you know, cheap solar panels, which for those listening, that's actually pretty good. That Those percentages might seem low to you, but if I remember correctly, coal factories, the highest they produce is a right clean cycle, which is about 86%, but that's ideal, but more realistically, they produce 65%. And solar is both a new and an old technology we've used solar for different reasons in the past and our ancestors but the current technology of using silica is for all purposes speaking a 21st century invention that being said more and more are being put onto the houses and it's also important to note that only two percent a little bit less than two percent of the world's electricity comes from solar it's not the greatest thing when you implement it because well the sun moves. The sun moves quite a bit. Daily, one might argue. Unless you're a flat earther, then you might not argue it. Well, I mean, technically, the sun revolves around the earth, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, Copernicus was wrong. I think we can all agree. I think you need to find a long rope and a short jump after that statement there, Nick. But solars, solar panels are being more and more implemented. Because the great thing about them is their space. They don't take up that much room. You can put them on top of things that relatively would not get any use, such as houses, uh, skyscrapers, uh, flat desert lands that would not matter. A big one that's happening is solar roof tiles, which is now no longer will you have that bulky look of solar panels on your house that can implement to you, hey, during the apocalypse, I have electricity. Come rob me. Uh, it, they look still kind of funky. I mean, it's relatively new technology, but they look more like 
house tiles, which camouflage in more, make it easier more to blend. And I mean, it's pretty good. But there's another problem with solar, which Nick forgot to mention, which is not only in its production, but also in its use. Solar panels need sun to run. It's kind of obvious. But the problem is when they get too hot, they lose so much efficiency. Around 76 degrees Fahrenheit, which is doing math in my head, 20 degrees Celsius, if I remember correctly. Uh, around around 75 degrees Fahrenheit, 76 degrees Fahrenheit, the efficiency severely drops. That's because how a solar panel works is the wavelength of the sun, of the light, hitting the cells causes the electrons to become energized and jump around, and the electrons moving creates electricity. It's a very simplified version, kind of dumbed-down version, but that's pretty much how it works. When there's a lot of heat around the solar panels, such as a hot day in the desert, it makes the the electrons more hot. So when they're they're not more energized, but when they are released, they release more energy and diffuse. So there's less electricity produced, which is a big problem. Until a very interesting thing that happened this September of 2021 of well. A company, which is uh, for the that was doing a competition in the United States for you know creating solar panels that were better, they created a type of solar panel that can withstand high temperatures, and I do mean higher temperatures. I mean 100 degrees Celsius, which oh quick math is. 200 something odd degrees fahrenheit right nick help me out with the metric system it's been about 12 years since the last time i've had to convert celsius into fahrenheit learn the metric god damn it well anyhow we're just not all right we'll just make it to the moon perfectly all right well i'm gonna keep with celsius then well anyhow this uh the energy department of america made this uh competition and this system operates like 100 degrees Celsius, like I said. But unfortunately, it needs aerogels to make it to those high temperatures. Well, for those who don't know, aerogel is very hard to make. And once again, more electricity, more energy is being used to create the solar panels than what the solar panels might offset. But there's an actually easy way, Nick, that you might enjoy to help make solar panels more electrically efficient and... It involves plants, your favorite. Does it have anything to do with some of the best land for solar panels is also the best land for farming? No, but I am intrigued about that. Hold on to that thought because I want to hear more about that. No, um, solar panels put above plant life tendency to do better simply because the plant life help keeps it cool. The shade helps create moisture, and the moisture kind of helps rise, which helps cool off the solar panels, so you don't need to cool off the solar panels so they stay more efficient. But I am curious about the farmland and the solar cells. Could you explain more on that? Well, it's pretty much exactly what you said. The solar cells work best, solar panels, we you want to call them, they work best in, when they're not super hot. Well, most of the good farmland is in areas where it's not super hot. You have adequate moisture, which is kind of the opposite of where I think most of the solar farms are. 
Uh, I know there's a lot going into Central Florida, mostly because it's a swamp and no one lives there. Uh, the southwestern United States, there's a lot going into, but where they're most efficient is prime agricultural ground in kind of the central to western United States, a little bit higher in than uh, where they're put being put in now, but because probably some kind of what you're saying, Mike, of cooler temperatures, you know, the more water that's there that keeps it cool, you don't have higher temperatures, so it runs more efficiently. But I have seen uh, that fact, like, even if, you know, you need plants to keep your soil moist, you know, provide, provide some kind of soil re- water retention in soil, but they also need to control their plants because you know if a plant grows up above and starts stealing resources for not resources the resource starts stealing sunlight if you get a tall enough plant like a uh, foxglove tree something something you know something everyone can picture that grows up grows up to above the height of the solar panel now you got something blocking that panel so you get less sunlight so you need some way to control those plants most uh most places use some kind of herbicide for vegetation management, which is pretty common practice throughout the United States. Certain places use uh, sheep. And the why sheep is the ticket, I, I think this is hilarious, because goats climb on everything, so that's a no-go. And cows, for those you don't know, they rub on everything, so they rub everything. But sheep are, are gentle enough, and you can deter them by just putting up fences and stuff, whereas goats just... Goats want to get high and climb and do whatever, but the sheep will come in it and, you know, it's not, they don't just keep them in there. They, it's a rotation. They'll graze them. Well, depending on which state, sheep are also a really, 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 really good friend too. Right, Nick? Very true. Depending if your state's Washington (laughs) or not. But, uh, so so the, the sheep will come in, chop down all the vegetation and then leave. But there was, um. You know, it's a learning experience, just like anything with with nature. Certain uh, mistakes have to happen, so you know what's what you can and can't do. So, some of the you know the sheep like to climb on stuff, and they like to they're similar to goats. They they want to get high. You know, when they're sitting there and chewing the cud, you know, digesting, ruminating, whatever you want to call it, uh, they get high just like any other animal to look for predators. And a lot of times, before you start. Uh, putting a bunch of fences off they'll get on top of you know something important that's got an uh, some kind of vent it's pushing hot warm air up as a like a not a refrigerator but basically they're they're block they're standing behind the vent so that whatever you're trying to keep cool just keeps getting hotter and hotter because they wanted to be on top of something so and, and then it obviously gets too hot and is not good for the machinery computers whatever inside and then in another time, apparently a sheep rubbed up against a, an emergency stop switch that stopped all operations on the, the solar farm. So, in job description, make it sheep proof. Uh, but since you brought up, well, one, I didn't expect the avenue of nature and trees, but it wouldn't be you, Nick, if you didn't bring it back to plants. But uh, getting far, far away from plants because of what you just said, if we put solar panels in the desert, like we said, uh, it's hard because the efficiency goes down because of temperature. But if we covered 1.2% of the Sahara Desert with solar panels, we would produce enough energy for the entire world. That's only with current solar panels being efficiency of 18 to 22% and only a certain spectrum of light. 
For those who don't know, uh, certain solar panels don't collect all light. They only t uh, collect certain wavelengths, which is new technology coming out, which I'll talk to you in a bit. But with that comes other factors. How do we transport the energy? How do we get the energy from the Sahara Desert to the world? The cost efficiency just isn't there. It would be green. It'd be effective. It would be renewable, but not cost efficient and just doesn't make any sense. It's the And plus, the solar farm in the Sahara Desert would only be temporary. Uh, we might do an episode on this, but uh, having solar farms and wind farms in the Sahara Desert might accidentally cause it to become a tropic zone and lose all its desert zones. So the Sahara Desert won't be a desert anymore, which is a whole new conversation for another time. That being said, a big thing being used in the deserts is mirrors, mirrors of solar panels. So rather than have the solar panels slowly, sorry, solely collect the energy, they have mirrors reflected to a tower. And the tower then either turns that into energy through solar panels or simply boils the water. That tends to be extremely efficient because, I mean, the, the mirrors can make the temperatures reach up to 1,200 degrees Kelvin, which I remember the conversion in that. That's about 18, 1,700 degrees Fahrenheit, which is absolutely scorching. That's, I mean, that's so hot. You can boil water so fast. Yeah, so we have those in Nevada, in the United States, and they're it's so bright, planes have to, they have to divert around them because it's blinding does not surprise me not surprise me and it will it it blind the birds that fly over it get blinded because of how bright it is i think birds just die from everything we're, we're we'll come up with it a couple times but birds fly into windows yes. birds get hit by <laughs> birds die by everything i think birds might be one of the dumbest creatures on this planet how did the dodo disappear <laughs> ate them all the world may never know Oh, shit. Yeah, we, we ate them all because they were really dumb. <laughs> well, not dumb, but they're docile. Um, just out of curiosity, since we were brought back to the United States, on average in the United States, a 6 to 12 kilowatt system costs about $16,000 to install. That's what it's just going to install. We're not talking about all the energy and stuff being used because, well, Nick, if your workforce doesn't have to be paid because it's in a camp... It makes you wonder how much things actually cost. It's very nice. <laughs> very good workforce. <laughs> uh, well, sticking sticking a little bit more on the topic. Also, you mentioned the farmland being really good solar panel areas. That's another big problem is solar panels are the most efficient when sun is directly hitting them. So com completely parallel to each other. And that's not all the time of the day. That's only a very short amount of time. So... Many people are implementing tracking systems. So they, they, the solar trackers follow the sun to make it always parallel to the sun. And well, these solar trackers take five to ten percent of the five to ten percent of the energy produced by the solar panels, but they have the ability to increase the solar panels' totally daily efficiency by forty-five percent. But a problem with this is one, it's kind of heavy technology you can't stick it on a roof if you stick it on a roof you need to reinforce the roof it's only a ground available which makes it less available less available which nick I, I assume you came across this active versus passive so active being the tractive uh the mechanical driven solar panel so on top of your car anything you're using running around with and then passive being stationary and such like that 
active tends to be better when it's focused on the sun when it's active like everyday life not so much which i thought was really interesting that maybe the efficiency of solar panel isn't in the molecules itself but simply the process of tracking with the sun yeah i definitely saw that about tracking with the sun and that's something we all know i feel like of uh you know the sun moves so like people who have I think they say it when you're, if you're going to buy solar panels for your house, not that my house has solar panels, but it's like, you want a south facing roof where you put your solar panels on. That's because that's where in nature, south facing slopes are drier because they get more sunlight, more direct exposure to the sun. So that's where you want your house to build. But we don't always build houses so that they get the most available sunlight, depending on where you live. Sometimes you want to stay out of the sun. If you live in a hot environment sometimes you want to get in the sun if you live in a cold place but part of the problem with not every house is meant for solar panels because some houses you know you're running east west so you're not getting the the full south sun it's just like if you have plants if you have plants you want them to get that that southern exposure get that full sun during the day it's the same thing with solar panels you know some people really love their plants and they'll go out there and move their plants from the backyard to the front yard to get that full sun other people, just, if the plant lives, the plant lives. Only the strong but survive. That's kind of how. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how the active versus passive works. Well, since you mentioned houses, I think it's a good point to intervene that there are solar windows as well, not just panels, but transparent solar panels, windows. I'm not sure what the the proper terminology is there for that which I found way more interesting simply because one, all right, so there's a big reduction of light. So if you're in your household, right, noon, it's pretty sunny, it's pretty bright. With these solar windows, it would reduce it nearly by half. I think it's like 40%, 35%. That's quite a bit. But if you're in an office building, giant skyscraper high in the sky, that seems more energy efficient. One, it keeps the inside more shade, which means less air conditioning being used. And more solar panels being uh, creating electricity. Seems like a win-win all around. And I mean, again, they are less efficient, but a little energy here and there all adds up quite quickly. I'm not sure on the cost, though. That was a big thing I couldn't find. Yeah, I didn't run into the cost of solar windows, and I really didn't see much about solar windows, so I cannot help you there well if i remember correctly uh the solar windows is not based off of silica material i'm not quite sure or not quite remember the silica material which is a organic material which probably makes it far less cheaper it probably makes it cheaper using silica solar cells than it does window solar cells until we find a replacement but another replacement that we could add to solar windows and solar panels and cells itself is simply not have it at the wavelengths that they're currently at. So the wavelengths that they're currently at isn't a large spectrum. For all those who don't remember, light comes in different wavelengths. So red is, what, 500 to 700, and then green is 700 to 1200, and 1200 to 1500 is blue, right, if I remember correctly. Could be mistaken on those numbers, but something around those lines. That's what visible color is. And... For the most part, solar panels, they go for those length, wavelengths. But they're missing a huge opportunity with infrared. Infrared is a huge spectrum which produces a lot of heat, which is scorching our planet daily. 
joke there, Dench, with Daly and Sun. Uh, but if we could expand the wavelengths that a solar panel can capture, that would significantly improve, one, the efficiency, and two, the energy produced. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, we kind of, what, when did we talk about this, where if you can take some of the energy hitting buildings, it'll reduce the power draw for air conditioning. I feel like this kind of ties into that, or maybe the opposite, I guess, if it just gets hot. But I did see something I didn't spend too much time looking at because I focused on kind of things that are in production now, but they're looking at a, a paint that you can paint on a building and that will also, it excites the electrons and somehow they harvest the the energy from the solar paint uh, on these buildings and it's helps cool the buildings as well. And so essentially what we're looking at in the future, if all this gets put into production is a giant building that's going to just take in all sorts of energy from the sun on the windows and the paint. So that's uh, that's pretty much most of the building. <laughs> Unless I'm forgetting something. Well, speaking of future, did you see the floating solar panel farms? Uh, I have... I came across them, didn't really spend much time looking at them, so you're going to have to bring me up to speed. A lot of people are floating the idea around that they should have solar farms that... Did you did you, did you? you just word that so you could say floating the idea yes, around? pretty much. That's uh, what I thought. Well, anyhow, they're floating this idea around simply because, one, a lot of reasons. Two, is Earth is kind of valuable. There's not that much Earth on Earth, which is kind of a ridiculous statement. Uh, but farmland, all this land that we can inhabit is valuable and we don't exactly want to fill it up with solar panels when we don't have to. So small, I've not seen this at a production level. I've only seen this on science level, which I could be mistaken, which if I am mistaken, please tell me, but people are implementing solar farms that can float on water. So that way they're in the ocean. They can just absorb energy that is in the ocean. The water helps keep it cool, which helps keep it efficient. It's a very interesting system because you could almost do like a, a lily pad system. Like if you picture lily pads in a river or a lake, all those lily pads could be technically solar panels, but in the ocean. It would produce a lot of electricity. Again, it comes down to transporting this electricity and storing the electricity, but it is possible and we have implemented on somewhat of a large experimental scale. If I remember correctly, they, I want, I got, I want it, I want to say Saudi Arabia. If not, it could be a Northern European country. I am, it's one of those two regions. But anyhow, they implemented a half a American football little solar farm, which was, I mean, it shows it floats. I mean, the only problem would be I see is maintenance would be the biggest issue and transporting the energy, but that's a lot of land. Well, not a lot of land. A lot of region and area you can use that is previously being unused by humans is floating solar farms. I like that because um, that kind of ties into something that I was looking at. So I guess one of the things is, where are these solar farms going? And, and some of them, it's private land, obviously, but a lot of them are going on public land, our, our land. In the United States, we have a lot of public land, thanks, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, the Bureau of Land Management has 245 million acres of public land. 
and they have designated 870,000 acres of that for solar energy. Um, eight and a half acres of land is needed to generate one megawatt of electricity, which would be around 100 gigawatts of electricity. 870,000 acres is a lot of land, and don't get me wrong, um, the Bureau of Land Management mostly has, most of their land is, they have a lot of forest land from railroad stuff, but a lot of it is more minerals land. Uh, most forest land is Forest Service or National Park, but the BLM has, a, don't get me wrong, out of 245 million acres, they have a lot of forest land, but a lot of it's more mineral rights stuff, so in that kind of southwestern area that a lot of solar farms are being put into. But, shoot, I should, I should convert that to hectares. 870,000 acres is a lot. A lot is a little bit of an understatement. That's a, that's a country, Nick. So that's 352,000 hectares. How many hectares are an acre? Um, one acre is 0. 0.404 hectares. Jesus. That's so much land there. That's so much viable land we could be used for other things, especially with population growing, food production needing to be increased for the growing population. It's, wow, that's so much. That is an almost unfathomable amount of land. Now, it's not all in production right now, but that's their current plans that it all will be. Um, that's set aside for that. So I, I don't know how much is is there now. But the, keep in mind, that's also, that's just the public ground managed by the BLM. There's a lot of other government agencies that own just as much land, and I'm sure a bunch of that's on private land as well, or a bunch of farms are on private land. Is it bad? My first which, my I first want, idea is, oh boy, how does the government ruin this one? Yep. Uh, so one of the things that I wanted to hit on a little of the environmental concerns of the plants, and we're going to do it for every plant. Um, but one of the big concerns with solar panels Whoa, is for say the audience, I'm gonna say every plant. Let's uh don't 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 concern me like that, Nick. I guess every power production plant is gonna have environmental issues, right? Uh yeah. I'm just uh grabbing more bourbon just in case. Okay. And I have an Excel spreadsheet. Of <laughs> grabbing more bourbon and, just in case. Energy source, and then it goes down the list. And then at, we're at the column called wildlife concerns. So solar, one of the wildlife concerns is a bunch of reflections from the sky makes birds, back to birds being dumb, Mike, think that it's a lake. And they will just <laughs> fly right to the lake <laughs> and end up fracturing the panels. Oh, and probably killing themselves in the process. Probably. Um, another one, like we you know, have that number 870,000 acres in your head is it fractures the landscape. Now, any kind of road, building, house, anything man-made is going to fracture habitat. That's just, that is, uh, that's just the way it works. But that's a big environmental concern that was raised by the environmentalist. So I thought I'd point it out there. Well, I think that's not exactly the fairest argument. I mean, obviously, if you're going to add something to produce something is going to remove something i mean i didn't say it was a good argument i said it was an environmentalist argument well just a quick isaac newton every action has an opposite equal reaction that's my only statement for that no completely agree but uh i did 
I have a good California story for you, Mike. Do I mm, mm, very cautious with this, but please continue. All right, we may edit this out, so put the timestamp on here. Um, so in California, a lot of people are putting solar panels on their houses. In fact, two thirds of solar panel production goes to the state of California. The land of the homeless. Well, the land of it's always fucking sunny there, so <laughs> it's it's not a not a bad place for solar panels. But that there's a problem with that. So all these homeowners can sell their power back to the electric companies or sell it to their neighbors and all this stuff. Well, the power grid needs to be updated so that all these people can do that. Well, who's going to pay for that? Californians? Are you... <laughs> Californians don't want to pay for that. They want the power company to pay for it. But they have... There's there's a, a bill... Assuming it's a bill, it's not law, uh, but I forget what number it is. But they're basically saying that each new, not existing, new solar panel have to pay ninety bucks a month plus whatever taxes that are already on solar panels in order to have solar panels. And the argument is is that uh, only the uh, rich people can afford to get solar panels, and so they should be the ones who have to pay for all the up updates for the grid to be able to use the solar panels and so california is in the middle of a battle between the environmentalist and the social justice warriors what would you call that because they're basically saying that the cost of upgrading the grid should not be it shouldn't be everyone's responsibility when only a few people are benefiting from solar panels but you have the environmentalists who say anything we can do to promote environment to promote solar panels is good, but you also don't want to have the people who aren't using it pay for it. So they're in a battle right now over. So just just how to, to clarify, that. California wants to add a new taxation for having independent energy source. That's correct. Now, to be fair, Californians did this to themselves when they said that the power company was responsible for all the wildfires and that they needed to make their grids like fireproof and that's why they shut down their power because they're solely responsible for it. So if they're solely responsible for all that stuff, why would they risk anything? You know, why they, that these people who are also using the grid to generate revenue should also have to have a share of that burden of fixing the grid from fires, windstorms, whatever it is. Yeah. That's too dumb for me to answer that, but you brought up an interesting point. I'm just going to caveat for all renewable slash green energy sources is that uh based on your production you could sell your extra electricity back to the power facility the power plants um that is a conversation which i'm going to save more for coal but uh i just thought yeah that's really weird that i just one want to point that out and two i'm still trying to figure out how another taxation on having green slash renewable slash independent energy source is a good idea. And I am trying to process it and I have no idea. Think on it. Then remember it's a California issue, um, but it does have far reaching implications because like I said, uh, like a third of the uh, solar panel revenue is in the state of California. If this were to pass, solar panel producers would lose a third of their revenue 
there'd be a lot less money in it. You probably wouldn't have the innovation because, I mean, you, you're down 33% of your profits. Well, that maybe mm. not, you know, some people will, some people will still buy solar panels, but you don't, I don't know how much you make, but I know you're not making 90 bucks a month plus whatever else California is taxing you. Well, I'm curious on what the turning key is for that industry in California because it's 30% currently, but how long will it sustain that? I mean, it, once you have solar panels on your roof, I mean, it takes a X amount of years to make that money back. I mean, 8 to 12 minimum. How much turning key do those businesses have? Which is, that's what I'm curious of. I'm not sure, but this is something that I struggled with of the lifespan of solar panels, Mike. So I saw that it's commonly agreed that solar panels degrade 0.5% a year. So, you know, your first, right when you start, you're 100% production, and then your next year, you're 95.5. But I've also seen that they say that for like a commercial setting, they only have a 20 to 25 year lifespan, which... 0.5% a year for even 25 say 20 years is only about like 12 and a half percent decrease but yet if you go onto like a solar panel website where they're selling you solar panels they say that they have a 40 to 50 year lifespan so is it that they'll work for 40 to 50 years or that it once they go past that 25 to 20 years they don't make what it costs to maintain them it just seemed kind of confusing to me how they're advertising i mean obviously they're going to advertise you know the highest like car companies you're going to get this miles per gallon well you're not really going to get that miles per gallon but you're going to get something less than that similar i don't know would would you come across for a lifespan of solar panels so this could be a long-winded answer and i apologize to all listening but it depends on the solar panel for those who don't know um it's not even across the board there are different types of formulas used to create solar panels there's also different shapes it's a the shape inside the photonic cell is also very important. Having a V versus a C is night and day. Uh, but yeah, it's that's completely changing how it is. Uh, the 40 to 50 year mark is that it will still produce power, not that it will produce the power necessary to, to drive your home. Uh, the 20 year mark is when I think... And I, I think it's even less than that, the 20 to 25 year mark, that is stop viable for and the average home to be electricity produced. So you can't run your home solely off solar panel. The 45, the 40 year mark, I believe, is simply you can still draw electricity until it kind of decays. But again, these are man-made objects. They will rust. Well, not rust is technically, let's use a metal frame, but they probably use an aluminum. Uh they will decay, they will lose over time, they will get burnt out, they will get crashed into, hail might happen. That 40-year mark is not going to happen. Realistically, it's probably around 18 years for roof solar panels. Uh, for desert solar panels, they could definitely push it out longer because the climate is more timid. There is less extreme temperature differences. There's less um, weather, I guess, so, to, so to speak, less chance of water damage less chance of snow uh yes it gets cold in the desert at night yes it gets hot in the day but you're not having extreme windstorms come through you're not having the four seasons you're only having two seasons the wet season and dry season that makes a huge difference that being said it also depends the generation of solar panels 
So are they 2000 to 2008 or 12? Somewhere around that mark. We'll just say 2010 just to average it out. Uh, those panels are dog shit. I believe they're at like 4 to 10% efficiency. I mean, I did that with a blueberry. Uh, so, I mean, that shows you how much the technology has come across. Stuff made from... Yeah, that was... I don't know if you remember our high school, Mike. We got... we Our high school spent 10 grand. The government matched us 10 grand for solar panels. And they produced enough power to power one room for four hours a day. Yep, that sounds about right for uh, for old... That was, what, 20... Probably like 2012, 13-ish? Is it, was it North Campus or South Campus? North yeah, Campus. Yeah, then it's 2012, 2011, 2013-ish. Um, well, that's also caught because our high school was not buying the premium solar panels. But yeah, uh, solar panels, every generation gets approved upon. Granted, we've hit some hiccups and getting over some speed bumps to get above the 20% efficiency is kind of been hard, but if we increase the wavelength and the shape of it maybe maybe we just have a chance but um yeah i would say the length of it depends on environment and generation model i mean nick you usually have an iphone 5 would not hold up to current models uh, that's for sure definitely uh probably not the best battery charge i'm reformed i have a flip phone now it's hallelujah you're saved uh but it is interesting that our high school got subsidized by the government for solar panels, because that is a big, big part of solar panels is tax write-offs. It's getting subsidized. You can sell your electricity back to the electrical power plants, so you don't have to, I don't know, uh, you can produce a little extra cash that way. Not often a lot of money, but it kind of bounces out throughout the year. But hot months get spends some solar panel energy to give back to the power plants, and in the wintertime when you need that and you can't produce it because you're in a snowy area, it evens out. So I only had one more thing about solar panels, and there's no scientific data to back this up, but it seems like a fucking rattlesnake nightmare. Just a bunch of hot ground with some vegetation to lie down in. Fuck that. That's the it's, Just looking at it, it's like, yep, there be snakes there. I'm a person who's had to deal with uh, rattlesnakes once in a while. Um, please no. Or cottonmouths. Cottonmouths aren't even nice. They don't even let you know you're getting close to them. Please know. Well, sticking with the animals and the common theme that happens to be with solar panels of killing birds, I think it's a great transition to talk into wind turbines, which is also a huge killer of birds. And if you haven't checked out that episode... And bats. And bats. And if you haven't checked out that episode, please check it out on the many episodes on Backyard Philosophy where you listen to podcasts. But yeah, wind turbines. Uh, Boy, this is a... uh, complicated one they are both terrible absolute dog shit and also wonderful at the same time and i'm not quite sure how to start this one off nick so wildlife concerns for turbines so we talked about birds and bats the funny thing about the birds is they're trying to (laughs) change they get fucked up so they're trying to change the uh the height of the turbines so if you have birds that migrate at a certain elevation go lower or higher if you have songbirds that tend to be lower go higher get rid of and uh, another thing is getting rid of all the mounts so you know so any kind of bird of prey a raptor is going to try and sit on top of the highest point and look around for mice and shit well if they can't sit anywhere on your turbine then 
odds are they're not going to fly off into a fucking blade. <laughs> so it's not a foolproof one, but I did run across something that's pretty cool uh, for bats. Now, bats is another major issue with turbines. I don't exactly know why. I always assumed that bats were like a little bit smarter than birds, but uh, this is really cool. So one, the first idea of how to deal with the bats was probably the worst idea. I mean, I guess it's 100% effective, but just don't run the turbines at night. Well, but that... That defeats the point <laughs> of the turbines. <laughs> I mean, at that point, just install solar panels. Well, I mean, to be fair, Mike, abstinence is 100% effective <laughs> birth control. Are you coming out of Utah, Nick, or where are you coming from? It's the same train of thought. Uh, but no, this is actually pretty sweet. So they put these sensors on the turbines, and when they sense the frequency, the same the same frequency the bats use for echolocation, it stops the turbine for ten minutes and until they don't see or pick up that frequency anymore. Uh, well, one that's kind of cool. It's kind of like a uh, motion door sensor, but for bats. Uh. My only concern is what happens when invasive species come in or when simply other equipment that's nearby sends off the same frequency. I am a little cautious of that. Well, I mean, this is pretty much what you got. So, um, looks like we're eating the bats. That changing, yeah, changing the shape of them hasn't, hasn't been effective. Um, I, I guess if, I didn't really look this up. I just, for me personally, I don't understand uh why everything keeps running into turbines like it's not that they're hidden i mean if anyone's driven across the united states you you've seen these giant fucking towers or if even if you've driven behind them moving one of the turbine blades and it's hanging off the back of the semi by like 50 feet but it is something that that uh wildlife seems to run right into well maybe they're just uh they're seeing this, hey, I can finally end it. I can end it all without quick an end. Douche. Yeah, every human's just like, man, it'd be so sweet to be a bird. Then you'd be a bird and just figure out you're just like a, a fucking emo. <laughs> <laughs> all birds are emo. Change my mind. Uh, but it is interesting. There are about 340, 100,000 wind turbines on the planet currently. The biggest wind farms being in india china and america so developing nation slash developed nation and about fifty-seven thousand of them are in the united states and if i remember correctly about 250 100,000 birds are killed by wind turbines if i remember correctly could be mistaken on that number so it's not exactly a small percentage but turbine and uh i guess one thing that's important to mention is the wind turbine kill, if you should call it that, increases during migration season. So some people are like, oh, you just turn it off when birds are migrating. Again, doesn't uh, produce elec- produce electricity at that time. But do you want your freezer to turn off during migration season? So it's it's not uh, it's not static. There are things that change up and down. Um, so there's there's areas that are worse or times that are worse and times that are better. That being said. Uh... Small turbines can produce anywhere from 100 kilowatts of power to 80 kilowatts, so 80 to 100 range. Large ones can produce anywhere from 4.8 to 9.5 megawatts. So kilowatts and megawatts is a pretty big jump. I mean, but 
there are some caveats. One, being the materials used. Two, being the cost. I mean, the average commercial wind turbine costs anywhere from $2.6 to $4 million to make. I mean, you have the steel, the aluminum, the transportation, the insulation, the getting the equipment out there. There's, it's not. And and the uh, back to everything comes from somewhere. You got the pneumonium, pneumonium magnets. Neonium. Generate the electric. Neomidium. No, neonium. I was thinking Star Wars. You you say it and then just put it in what I was saying. Okay. So it sounds like I said it right. All right. Well, uh, I got a reputation to uphold. You don't. Uh, one, I've worked with neodymiumics quite a bit. Wow, I messed that one up. Neodymium magnets quite a bit, so I'm quite familiar with them. Those, for those wondering, this is kind of like a little fun fact. I believe there's one spot in North America is found. One couple spots in Africa. It's, Found, but the majority is found in the Southeast Asia region. So that's just fun fact there for the United China. <laughs> yeah. So um, again, things come from the ground. That's where things come from. But also, uh, the base of the turbines is is pretty big, pretty deep. Like, um, and again, this this is all size dependent. You know, taller turbines are going to need a wider base. But uh, like a 328-foot-tall turbine is going to need like a 15 feet of concrete, which is more concrete than, uh, yeah, that's more than like an airport has. Yeah. Uh, or depth, at least. Well, yeah, definitely depth. Um, for the, this, this might make it a little bit more simple for people to think. Your garage where you store your car is usually three inches of concrete. For a blacksmith where they have a power hammer where it's hydraulic, where it's a lot of mass moving up and down, it's usually six inches of concrete. To have 15 feet deep concrete, concrete, uh, that is, that's, that hurts my brain as an engineer. That's so deep. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, what'd you say, Nick? The height was 326 feet? Like, yeah, 328 feet. Yeah, that, I mean, it seems like, I don't know why they don't go more shallow and simply spread and wider. out. They go, yeah, they don't, they don't go as wide. Um, I think it was only like, yeah, like only eight feet from the edge of the turbine wide. Like it wasn't very, wasn't, uh, it wasn't crazy wide, but I think it's cause they're, they're buying uh, the ground from private landowners. This is just my, my guess. They're buying the ground from private landowners and they're trying to take up the minimum space that they can. So to pay for that over time, depending on the agreement with the landowner. So I think maybe they're thinking if they go deeper, they don't have to go as far out so they can have to pay less overall. And it's cheaper to to go down because most farmers don't care about what's you know five feet below the ground. Might make sense. I mean, I actually looked that up of what the average land rental is for wind turbines. So for those who don't know, um, wind turbine farms are usually put on land that other people own. Uh, it's the amount of electricity produced is is how they kind of make their money, and they're kind of renting out the area to do so. The average renting for wind turbines is about $8,000 per turbine per year. That's a lot of money there. For one individual turbine, especially when there's fifty-seven thousand of them in the United States. Yeah, and uh, so something to think about for wind turbines is just like uh, we talked about in 
what was the word for yours where they're looking at like the black hole by looking at stuff around it? A gravitational lens? Yes, the gravitational lens is that, you know, kind of looking at stuff around it. So one turbine is going to throw off, you know, it's going to reduce that wind around it. So each turbine needs an area of about 80 acres around it. So that doesn't mean that one turbine takes up 80 acres of land. It just means that for every 80 acres, you can probably only have one turbine because otherwise the ones near it are getting caught in the wake or whatever you want to call it of that first turbine. But all those need to be connected in some way because you need to get guys out there. You need to get equipment out there. You need to get the freaking turbine out there. So you need roads built and stuff like that that, that go out there. So it's uh, it's multiple land. Like it's, You're going to deal with multiple landowners. I mean, if you have trying to th- uh, let's see how many turbines are in an, an average farm, but it's a lot. I mean, you can driving across certain highways in the United States, you can see turbines into the horizon. So it's probably not all one landowner. If it is, it's Uncle Sam. But you have to, it's a lot of work to get all those landowners to agree and then go out there and build it and then get all that equipment out there. That's just moving the the equipment is expensive. Um, so offshore turbines, they just build the, the place that constructs the, the blades at the port because it's cheaper than, well, also that they're huge freaking blades. So it's just easier to just make them there, put them on a boat and send them out into the ocean than it is to make them somewhere else and ship them out there. Every gram has a cost for transportation, fuel efficiency, and uh, simply cutting the distance can make a huge difference. And I think it's also important to know, uh, for those who don't know, which I assume most listening know, how a wind turbine works is pretty simple. The wind blows, and it's not exactly consistent, which is one of the problems with wind turbines, but it blows and it spins pretty much an alternator, and the alternator spins a magnet inside a solenoid, which is a coil of copper wires usually, and magnets going through copper wires produce electricity, which sends that current out. So that's all it is. It's pretty much the same alternator in your car, but instead of the engine driving it, it's the wind driving it, and that's pretty much how wind turbines produce electricity. Yeah, and uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting is if the winds get above the for terrestrial, not just for the ter- uh, land-based turbines, if the winds get above 55 miles an hour, they have brakes that slow the turbine because it's going too fast. It's not like a cartoon where it just starts spinning and generating like unlimited electricity because it gets too fast and it's not good for the the internals of the turbine. Oh, I assume that most people have seen videos of wind type wind turbine blades breaking. Uh, I mean, certain storms can just destroy wind turbines and shred them into pieces. One video that comes to mind, which is a horse video. Like lightning storms or wind storms? Wind storms. Okay. Um, so for those who don't know, the blades are designed with specific angles to be optimized for it. Now, granted, the classic triangle, the three-bladed uh, wind turbine, might be the thing of the past. There are new ones coming out, which may be more efficient. But if you're looking at a wind turbine blade, like a normal propeller blade on an air, like a classic one-engine airplane, not the middle, but if you go towards the edge a little bit, maybe like I don't know, twenty-five percent more away from the center, that's the weakest point. And when certain windstorms happen, like say in Iowa. Well, the horses sense what's happening and run away, and all of a sudden, the turbine turns into 
little shreds and bits and pieces because the brake, much like the brake in your car, can be shoved off. Like you can hold down the brake and if a semi hits you, you're still going to go forward. There's still momentum and structural differences. I mean, material might have a micro fracture. All that causes wind turbines to, blur to break. That being said, they still produce quite a bit of energy. I mean, 4.8 to 9.5 megawatts, that's a huge amount. Now, granted, it's not all year round, but still, that's a huge amount of electricity. And also, maintenance on them is not too bad. The neonatomium magnets are replaceable. The copper inside the alternator is replaceable. The only thing that's kind of an issue is the, the actual... Uh, blades themselves i mean from what i saw the blades only last about 20 years and wind turbine technology at least for the 21st century the modern i would say wind turbine technology we're getting closer to that 20 year mark which means 700,000 tons of those blades will need to be disposed of in some way that's a lot so of i did see a way to get rid of those blades. There's a company that's taking their used blades and so that 15 foot deep concrete block has a ton of rebar in it and they're basically using their old blades as that rebar. Well, uh, this is out of curiosity. Uh, I thought most of those blades were not made out completely out of steel. I thought they were alloys, aluminum, and uh, what are yeah they're i think they're using part of them and another part they're like grinding up as like a filler for the concrete i mean if it's sharp and pointy enough molecules yeah that would work would bind to the i mean concrete. you got <laughs> i mean if i'm pouring 15 feet of concrete i'm gonna put some fucking filler in it because <laughs> that's a lot of money uh yeah that is oof, again anywhere from 2.6 to 4 million dollars per commercial grade wind turbine and I, I this is kind of an important factor to note what i saw nick for the grams of carbon dioxide per kilowatt hour i saw 4.9 grams of carbon dioxide per kilowatt hour which is besides nuclear i believe the best i think it's even better than solar yeah so i had uh i saw 11 grams of co2 per kilowatt hour um in a study that compared wind solar nuclear and coal um, had 11 grams for wind 44 grams for solar a nine for nuclear a thousand for coal and 450 for natural gas and it had biomass burning at neutral because it regrows from it like it That's takes false. A takes away so uh i'm one uh where what year and where did you find this uh information uh i have to look through my sources but because the reason i say this is biofuel for the most part is not zero uh i'll talk about it once biofuel pops up but biofuel is not as good as everyone thinks it is and is i much rather have a bunch of wind farms solar farms than biofuel well yeah i also thought that the coal for a thousand seems like pretty high for a lot of other stuff, it was pretty similar to a lot of uh, I don't know other forms of energy. Although, well, but it's hard to find. So, here's the disclaimer I'm gonna throw out: is everyone measures certain like different things? Like, so 
I think this might have been the one I was complaining to you about before, where like when it talks about um, CO2 produced, like I think for coal, it talked about like the CO2 that the the amount of concrete. No, that was for dams. No, like so for coal, it talked about okay, so you have dozers and and front end loaders that move everything around, and it combine that for coal but it didn't take into account the trucks that move the turbines around for wind so it's like at what point do you cut it off right so it's cherry picking yeah like like now i I get it the the front end loaders and the dozers are an active part like every day running with the coal plant uh it's not exactly true either well i mean some of i don't know i only i only know chip plants so (laughs) i'm assuming they are kind of the same but uh no idea but it did seem like there was some cherry picking I, I that's a perfect term for it but it's also hard because it's like how how you know wh- where's the line like are you just doing the plant or do you go everything that goes into it because like let's say solar for example china's not telling you how much co2 came out of its factories to make your panels so are we just guessing i don't know it's just it was I tried to make a spreadsheet and compare everything, but everything is measured differently and some things are included and some aren't. So it's maybe if someone who has, you know, not a full-time job, but can go through and try and sort through the bullshit. But this is uh, this is what I got. Well, it also depends also on the generation of technology. I mean, we approve constantly with each one, especially when millions of dollars are upon the line. Every little inch matters and that can make the biggest difference so i imagine the difference between 2015 to now the percentage of efficiency cost is completely changed well yeah i mean like we talked about our solar panels from our high school it's uh way more efficient now it's not just you're not spending 20 grand to power a a one classroom for four hours a day yeah and also speaking of kind of waste of money with uh wind turbines there's another underlying cost which a lot of people don't think of which is a long way so hear me out but insurance wind turbines have ridiculous insurance rates i don't remember the exact figures on my line but i mean a spinning giant blades it tends to have high insurance rates that insurance rates means more workers for the insurance company which means they produce more electricity which means they need more paper. They mean all these other things. Everything is attached. Everything is ripples upon ripples upon ripples. It's it's not a linear system. It's a dynamic system. It's it's not static at all. And I just found it hilarious that one of the problems with uh, because both wind and solar get government subsidies, but I believe solar you don't need insurance for but i believe wind turbines you do so i'm wondering just kind of and i've seen if that's kind of similar to like the california with the transmission lines cutting through the ground so that i mean that's crazy that you know solar doesn't need insurance but i think with turbines so one they're giant lightning magnets two they're spread out over a wide distance of usually arid land which arid means likely flammable during the the (laughs) summer so i feel like there's a lot higher risk of things that you need insurance for 
and then also like crop insurance. So in the very beginning, not this is happening now, but uh, the turbines, when they first were, you know, like we said, a lot of times they go on private land. It's usually a farmer or some landowner like that. They would have uh, the, the uh, not gel oil, lubricant. The lubricant from the turbines would leak under their crops and kill a bunch of crops. So I'm sure they had to pay out for that to the farmers. So I'm wondering if that had something to do with why it was required, because these turbines might have been killing all these farmers' crops and the company was like, all right, we got to gotta figure out a way to insure against this. Well, sticking on that point, uh, the lubricant they probably use is either petroleum or lithium-based. One, petroleum being based means it comes from oil, which is its own slew of things. And if it's lithium-based, it needs to be mined out of the soil. So where does the lube come from? That's also another expensive cost. It's uh, renewable and green is not as cut and as dry as I thought it was especially coming into this and especially researching this oh yeah and uh especially with wind turbines where it's now i guess the good thing about wind turbines where and and same with solar is i think there's a a way they can work with farmers and landowners of every say agriculture someone in if you work in agriculture you know that you have a piece of land that's not as productive as the rest of their land that's probably the perfect place to put a put a either some solar panels or a wind farm. It, you know, if you're if it's not going to produce productive crops, whatever your crop is. Now, I think there's a, I think there's a something that could be worked out, kind of similar to like a, a CRP program of identifying those areas, and saying, hey, you know, this this isn't good for crop production. You have to use more water than anywhere else. Put more fertilizer in there. Let's just chalk it up to a loss, put a turbine there, and at least get paid for that ground. So you're still getting an income from it. So I think there's there's something there for for working with you know the environment of. No, don't of, get me wrong. Multiple sources of energy, I am all for having more solar, having more wind. So we're not dependency dependent on certain minerals. I am all for having. I think a large choice is a huge part of energy sources. Uh, we're just pointing out, at least what I'm pointing out, uh, pointing out, I believe you're with me, Nick, on this, is we're just pointing out that everything's not so cut and dry. There are good things and bad things about both, and we're just sh- exposing them all to everyone. Yeah, and uh, I think, Mike, you'll agree with me on this. It's I can't remember. We've said it a few times before, but each I think each energy source is just another tool in the toolbox. Some are going to work somewhere, some aren't most aren't going to work everywhere but some might have a fit here some might there and it's going to take a combination of of all of these to provide cleaner greener energy and just energy in general you know it's not uh i don't think it's a one-stop shop no i don't think it's a one-stop stop either i mean if you're in a dry arid place where not a lot of wind is happening why put wind uh why put wind turbines there Put solar panels there. Yeah, like the American Southwest Southeast is one of the worst places for wind turbines. You guys just don't get the wind that the rest of the country does. Yeah, and also, uh, I speaking, uh, you mentioned wind turbines are lightning rods, so to speak, for storms. Um, lightning is not the 
biggest issue in the world for well any of the renewable energy sources uh luckily for us we've have the lightning rod the lightning rod is quite efficient at removing that energy source which is quite wonderful and uh depending on time we might talk about how lightning might be it but having multiple energy sources is a great thing i mean we have the sun we have the wind but we also have the earth we also have the ground below us which is full of magma and hot energy that would be that would be geothermal energy and nick i'm not sure if you're done with wind turbines or if you are we could hop into geothermal or we continue with wind turbines um, the only thing I had left for wind turbines is just say the life, I think we already touched on it, but just want to make sure the life expectancy for a wind turbine is about 20 years. So that's what I have too, is about 20 years. Cool. So yeah, geothermal. Um, when we talked about not everything works everywhere, this is probably the best example. Boy, this is, yeah, this is just very few spots. One of those spots being Iceland. You need to be, have certain regions to use geothermal energy. And I don't know if you came across this, Nick, but I was reading some blogs is not the right word, but it's the only word that's coming to mind uh, of people's opinion on geothermal energy. And people did not realize that, hey, you can't have geothermal energy. People were wondering why they couldn't have geothermal energy in Kansas. And I was just, I was just thinking... Well, you kind of need tectonic plates and magma and need to be at the edge to do that, but you didn't understand that, so I'm not sure how to explain the simple process of it. And yes, geothermal, only certain areas. Certain areas where there's active earth, for the best words. That tends to be where tectonic plates meet. That tends to be where lava's coming out. That I mean, there are very few specific regions, Nick, where geothermal is a viable source. Yeah, and that's, uh, I've heard the same argument of, of we need to take advantage of geothermal. It's like, um, where though? <laughs> like, yeah, same thing. It's, it's not something that you can just put a power plant over some dirt and be like, this is geothermal, right? All right, well, before we get too far, I want to specify... There are two different types of geothermal. There is a geothermal that everyone can do everywhere in the world, which is simply running your water or your heating slash cooling system down deep into the earth where it's consistent temperature and running it back up to help cool and stuff like that. We're not talking about that geothermal. We're talking about geothermal that produces electricity. Those are two separate issues. And the geothermal that produces electricity, uh, maybe the fault line in California, I was reading a study that um, proposed in 2009, 2010 by a government agency of where to put geothermal. And the only places really were near Wyoming and Montana simply because of Yellowstone Park. We need that volcanic activity. And that was the only regions I saw in the United States where geothermal for producing electricity is viable. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I saw as well. And... Uh... We're not putting anything in a national park, so that uh, doesn't really leave much. No, but that being said, it might be good for other places in the world. 
I mean, for example, Iceland, I think it's close to 98% of its energy from geothermal. It's a, boy, talk about a hot zone. Oh, God. Yeah, I know. Uh, but there, there are some issues. There are definitely some issues with geothermal. Uh, one, the cost. Uh, wind turbines, like we said, produce pretty good kilowatts per, you know, anywhere from 4.8 to 9.5 uh, megawatts. But geothermal produce about one megawatt. So one-ninth of it. And for sometimes almost double the cost. I mean, for a geothermal power plant, it costs anywhere on average from two to seven million compared to the wind turbines, which are anywhere from 2.6 to 4 million. And if you can produce 4.8 to 9.5 megawatts for less money and one megawatt for more money, why would you not just do wind turbines? And how people, people might wonder how a geothermal works. Well, it's kind of the same thing how most energy sources work. It's simply boiling water to spin some blades to produce electricity. It all comes down to turbines and magnets. So the geothermal under the earth is magma. It's the best way to say it. When you add a lot of pressure, you add a lot of heat. And the closer you get to the center of the earth, the hotter it gets. So in certain regions, like where tectonic plates meet, like such in Iceland, you have access to these areas. So the magma is, well, not exactly the magma, but these hot regions are introduced by water. This water is turned into steam, which is comes in two different forms. So you got dry steam and flash steam. Dry steam is, well, was first developed in 1911, which is steam fed directly to a turbine so it's kind of controlled flash steam is well kind of flash in the pan i mean i assume everyone here is cooked one time and they added some water to a hot plate and it just kind of vanished it's kind of like that where it's a kind of a sprint more than a marathon so dry steam more of a marathon flash steam being more of a sprint and the water is introduced to these heat and pressure zones which is turned to steam which then goes up and spins a turbine stir turbine much like everything else spins a magnet the magnet produces electricity and this has more issues than i thought nick rather than just location and before i hop into those issues i was wondering if you had anything else to add um so the only thing i got on geothermal is uh for 60 so per megawatt hour produced produces 60 pounds of CO2, which is less than coal and less than natural gas, which produces 850 pounds. And one of the problems of geothermal is uh, the runoff pollution, which is harmful to fish. And for every megawatt hour, it produces 0.35 pounds of sulfur dioxide, which is according to the U.S. Department of Energy. So I'd all of that. So if it's wrong, it's not my fault. Well, I'm not exactly sure on those numbers, but I am sure something, like you mentioned pollution. Geothermal is a very delicate process to do. If you mess up, a lot of toxins can enter both the water, land, and air. Like you mentioned sulfur, which is 
because everyone knows too much sulfur is kind of bad. But it's also all these other chemicals adding to the atmosphere. I mean, it's a very high pressure heat zone. So if, for example, rainfall was to be heavy and leak into, you'd produce more steam. More steam could break the break the power plant the po- and then thus releasing all these gases, chemicals that we dug holes to into the atmosphere, which could destroy crops, pollute and poison people. It's a very delicate process. It's, um, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I think it's optimal. I mean, our ancestors, the Native Americans, are the earliest ones to be using geothermal about 10,000 years ago using hot springs. Other cultures soon to follow, but at a process where we might be releasing sulfur dioxide, carbon dioxide, it might have all these negative benefits. I don't think it's a beneficial thing for the entire world, especially when only certain regions can have it. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's it, the good thing is it seems like most of the places where it does have it are, are pretty well developed and probably have pretty reasonable environmental regulations, it seems like. Well, this might be a loaded question, but I'm trying to think of third world countries or second world countries that are in volcanic I mean, I, I areas. I guess to me it, it just comes up to... a. Uh, Pretty, I mean, the big one is is Iceland. Is pretty much the one I think about, and I feel like they they're doing things pretty good. I don't know. I mean, a country that's never been to war and kind of like the most neutral country ever. That yeah, I mean, I can I can see that. Uh, it's also not the largest country in the world, so that's probably makes it a lot easier. But like I said, I think it's ninety eight percent. It's a super high percentage is all coming from geothermal energy. I mean, it, it's it's definitely viable for Iceland, but for the world, I don't think it's viable for the world. No, I, I definitely agree. I think it's uh, it's one of those things people throw out there that sounds good just to kind of, you know, like, like when people say like, oh, the U.S. gets its, you know, renewable resources. We have wind, solar, geothermal. We might get like, I think it's like, it's less than a percent of geothermal for the United States, but it's just kind of like, Oh, look at us. We're green kind of thing. I don't know. It's kind of what I th- I think it is. Well, again, there are a very big difference of being energy efficient with geothermal versus producing energy with geothermal. Uh, we could build a lot of homes, buildings, infrastructure with geothermal in mind because the ground is a viable source to help make things more efficient. But simply to produce electricity, which we're more talking about this episode, is not very efficient for America. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that statement. Well, speaking of efficiency, and one of my, well, probably a year and a half of study at university, coal, Nick. Dark black coal. Well, coal's bad, Mike, so next topic. Uh, I'm sorry. Do you like having steel? Do you like having electricity? Do you like having heat in your home? Well, that's what all coal gives you. Coal, which is... God, I don't even know or how long our ancestors have been burning coal. Uh, for those, well, who- uh, I think it went from whale fat to coal, so that should be like a, if not an exact number, kind of a you can kind of figure it out from there, right? Well, I think coal came burning came before whale fat. Whale fat, yeah, uh, I mean, sim- probably sim- simply whale fat was probably just a fad, right? Yeah. Uh, well, simply because steel. 
Steel has 1% to 3% carbon in it. Unless it's cast iron, then it might have 7%. But anyhow, everything, uh, most things in the world, in some form or way, either have petroleum or coal evolved. And for centuries, our people, that being the human race, have been burning coal to produce electricity, create energy. And for a long, long time, it has not been green nor renewable. But it can be, and in certain places, in certain regions, it is renewable. Now, you might be thinking, Mike's gone crazy. Coal's not renewable. I feel, I feel like we just lost anyone who's still here. All right, listen, 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 listen. Before, before you click away and go listen to, I don't know what podcast, coal can be renewable. Carbon can be captured from the air. We're trying to do that process now. We're trying to do that in the water. We're trying to do it in the air. But there are already some power plants that capture the carbon being burned. It also depends on the country. So there are different types of coal. There are There's clean coal, and then there's unkempt coal. It's not the proper term for it, but it's an easy process for men. So clean coal is usually washed and removed of heavy metals, toxins, such like that. So when you burn it, it's pretty much just pure carbon. It's a little bit more expensive to do, but it's a better result. And then there you have developing nations and third world countries who simply just burn whatever comes out of the ground, which releases lots of deadly chemicals into the air. But, I mean, I can't really blame them if I had to choose between having electricity and refrigeration or simply not. I would probably choose refrigeration and having those and having electricity. That being said, uh, Nick, you mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast of coal being transported by trucks. Most coal power plants are somewhat near railroad facilities. So there's a reason why this. So railroad tracks tend to follow both lakes and near power plants, or vice versa. Power plants tend to follow where railroads meet lakes. Uh, The reason why this is most United States power plants, I think it's by law actually, have to have at least eight eight months of supply of coals on them. So that means if... So the trains stop coming, the trucks stop coming. They could still keep running for eight months. And it's the same process for geothermal. You heat up coal in a boiler, you boil some water, you spin a turbine, and that turbine produces electricity. It's the same thing. The only difference is these new plants, instead of having the toxins or the carbon be released into the air, they're capturing it. And all those carbon molecules that you just burned you're recapturing to reburn again. It's a renewable source. It can be green too. I mean, you could technically burn the same coal for centuries. It's just a hard process to do, which technology is slowly catching up. And being the facilities we can, there's one in Texas, which I believe is near Houston. And there's another, and I believe it's Europe, that is carbon zero coal power plants which is a weird statement coming out of my mouth it's carb wait say it again so it's carbon power plants that are not releasing any carbon they are green coal power plants by capturing the coal that's coming out and reusing it yep okay on the same page now and i mean Coal's proven at producing electricity very well. 
I mean, if you want to talk not on an environmental point, but simply a power point, coal's really good at producing power. It's really easy to burn, keep that going, especially clean coal. You don't have to worry about all those chemicals. I mean, there's tons of filtration systems in that. And also, you can have a heat exchanger, which helps collect some of the energy coming back. But the process of implementing a new process to simply convert current coal power plants to capture the carbon that they're burning off and reuse it might be able to implement a technology that we already have it was just an updated feature and uh, for those wondering what about all those white gases coming out of uh, power plants coal power plants that's water vapor um just out of curiosity just telling just kind of giving out that's pretty much just water vapor that's not carbon dioxide um you have to release the steam sometimes and sometimes yeah you can that's that's uh i feel like a lot of the times it's it's water vapor we have a i worked for a company that had a cogeneration plant and people would always complain about the whatever whatever they want to call it exhaust or whatever but they're like yeah it's that's uh it's just water vapor yeah pretty much i don't know all electricity being produced is simply just water being boiled in one form or another it's 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 that's pretty much what most electricity is. It's just different ways to boil water, and coal is really good at it. But the really thing that was interesting to me is we already have an infrastructure of coal power plants. Why not just make that renewable? Why not just add a new filtration system to the power plants rather than build entire new facilities? That seems like a much easier process to get to the green slash renewable than completely uproot the infrastructure and create new new factories yeah i mean that's you already got it you're you know the the main the meat and the potatoes you just got to add a little little side dish there yeah and uh, i mean coal is already so much into our life i mean carbon is everywhere on this planet and it's pretty abundant in the universe so i mean why not use it if we are able to use it responsibly which we currently are not but if we have the ability to well i guess it, it's this might be more of an, an ethical question of uh, like we talked about with solar and, and wind the government's giving a lot of subsidies to them to make them work well, and like you're saying this, this could be a green technology but because it's got the you know coal on it people don't like coal is this, where do we draw the line i guess the be- very beginning when you're arguing over what's green and what's clean we're uh, we're back to that argument I mean, I would say it's pretty clean. If we already have the infrastructure and we don't have to add any more materials, really, to add to that, that means less processed materials to be made to to create a renewable energy source. I would say that's pretty green. So you're talking about recycling? Uh, What's the fancy word from instead of upcycling? Is that it? Oh, my God. How the fuck did you know that word? Ah, that's that's a that's a long story that involves some tires and me not getting any credit. But okay, well, I was gonna say, have you been to anthropology lately? But that is sounds like the exact opposite of that story. <laughs> so, Kim, moving on. The eighth, the eight month supply of coal in the United States, you wouldn't have to constantly refill that. I mean, if you made processing centers to make more clean coal, you would. I don't know, have to restock every 15 to 25 years, maybe add some more coal to keep that eighth month up. 
I'm not sure on how many cycles a carbon burning facility can do if it's renewable, but I imagine that, I mean, it's just carbon. You can break down the carbon dioxide that you produce too. I, I imagine your machinery will break before your carbon breaks. I also, uh, I want to throw out another pro for coal that we haven't really talked about uh, storage. You can store eight months of coal. Oh, can't store eight months of sun or wind or geothermal. Yeah, that is true. Coal is a very stable molecule. I mean, it's just pure carbon. I mean, you can, God, I don't, coal lasts hundreds of thousands of years. I don't even know the the end date of coal. I, I imagine the facility that burns it will rust and fall apart before coal decomposes or ha- whatever the half-life of coal is. Uh, I'm looking for the half-life of coal, but it's not coming up. Coal might last near def- indefinitely. I mean, it's no bismuth with a ridiculous half-life, but coal, coal is just carbon. Carbon is super stable hexagonal structure. That's going to last a very long time. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how long it lasts, but uh, uh, but we're burning coal that's, what, 300 million years old, so I think we're pretty good. I'm not worried about it decomposing in our hands. That concludes part one of Renewable versus Green Energy. Stay tuned next week where we pick it back up for part two. And as always, thank you all for listening. <laughs>